chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Heavenly Father, we pray that this word would sink into our hearts tonight. We pray that you would bless and equip our pastor for this ministry. We pray that we would have ears to hear as the Lord Jesus Christ so often exhorted his disciples and us today, Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We pray that you bless also Ron and Yvonne. Think of Ron not being so well at the moment with his arthritis. Do bless and be with him. And Yvonne, this evening we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this series of looking at the person of Jesus Christ, we looked last week at the deity of the man known as Jesus of Nazareth, at the carpenter from Nazareth, who, as Isaiah said, would, be, uh, would have appeared as nothing extraordinary, nothing unusual about his physical, visual appearance, just like any other Jewish man. And yet, through what he did and through what he said, Jesus of Nazareth was shown to be God incarnate, that he was, in fact, God manifest in a human body. When the Apostle John writes, the Word, who you remember was God, the, the Word who was with God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm reading a, a book at the minute by Mark Jones, Knowing Christ. It's a great book. I don't recommend too many books because you know, we can't read too many books. But there's so many great books out there. This is my current one I read usually in the mornings. Mark Jones, in his book, writes, Christians who confess that Jesus is God are the best theologians in the world. They are echoing a confession that has been on the lips of all God's people from the very beginning. And he goes on to quote from a sermon, a sermon preached by Clement in the first century AD. Apparently, it's the oldest surviving sermon of the church since New Testament times. And Clement said this, Brethren, we ought so to think of Jesus Christ as of God, as the judge of living and dead. We ought not to belittle our salvation, for when we belittle him, we expect also to receive little. To confess that Jesus is indeed Lord is vital to the Christian faith, for as faithful and true as the messengers from God were who came before Christ appeared. Only God, who knows God and has seen God, only He can make God known to us. Secondly, only someone as infinite of, as God could bear the weight, could bear the full penalty for all the sin, 
of all God's people. No one else could do that. No one else could cope with that unless that person was God. As I thought of that, I remembered a poster I remember seeing in a weightlifting gym, Christian poster. It showed an image of Jesus on a rocky piece of ground, pushing himself up as though he were doing a press-up. And on his back in this image was a big, heavy wooden cross. And across the wooden cross were the words, the sin of the world. So Jesus is pushing up off the ground with this cross on his back, the sin of the world. And the caption on the poster said, Lord's Gym, bench press this. And for that context of a weightlifting gym, it was appropriate for those in the gym who thought they were big and strong, could lift anything in the gym, for them to be reminded that only God the Son could carry such a weight of sin. And thirdly, the deity of Jesus Christ is vital to the Christian faith, for only someone truly and fully God could be the perfect mediator between God and man. And that leads us on then onto our study this evening, and that is we look at the humanity of Jesus Christ. We've looked last week at the deity and the significance of it, and this week we're looking at the humanity of Jesus Christ, in that Jesus is not only truly divine, but he is also truly human. Paul writes in Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Hebrews 2 verse 14 reads, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. Based on those sorts of verses, we could say that without ceasing to be all that he was, the Son of God took on something he had not before. He became human. He became fully and truly human. And there are confessions and creeds that historically have been written, and they're very helpful in summarizing for us what that means and what it doesn't mean. For example, I'll read something to you from the Baptist Confession of 1689. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, one substance and equal with him who made the world, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon himself man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. We'll come back later on to creeds and so forth. But let's begin there where I've left off, this matter of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. How God, who is a spirit, God eternal, God the Son eternal, who in heaven eternal was a spirit, how God took on human nature. How did that happen? Scripture is very clear. It goes to great lengths to tell us that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary without a human father. For example, Matthew 1 verse 18 tells us now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. And his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together 
she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And that was, of course, the big problem Joseph had because he assumed that she had been with another man and so Joseph needs to be told the truth. He himself is told that whilst he's not the biological father of the child because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what you think about pregnancies, but I think every pregnancy is a phenomenal thing. It is a mystery, a glorious uh, mystery. And of course, we can, you know, explain it away with the biology of it, uh, an egg and sperm and cells dividing and what happens at what stage, at what week, and so on and so forth. Modern technology now shows us pictures of the baby at its very earliest stages. We can see the beating heart at around five to six weeks. And the body continues to grow and to develop, going on inside the womb of a woman. It's all a truly marvelous mystery. And how true Scripture is then to say that we are all, every one of us, fearfully and wonderfully made. How much more than the mystery and how the eternal Son of God, the one described as the Alpha and Omega, the second person of the Trinity, how much more a mystery for Him to change location from heaven to the womb of the Virgin Mary when, as we sing at Christmas, the infinite contracted to a span and was found in a womb. It's a great mystery. It's a greater mystery than that of normal pregnancy. And this greatest of mysteries happened, as Scripture tells us. Scripture talks of the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary and so on and so forth. And the divine power creates within her this child, and therefore this child would be great and would be called the Son of the Most High. The Father in heaven sent his Son, and by the Holy Spirit, the Son, and it's difficult to explain this, okay? The Son took up residence in the womb of Mary and took on her flesh. At five weeks gestation, Mary's blood was running through Christ's beating heart. Her genes were part of his genetic makeup. We can only speculate, but quite possibly when Jesus grew up, quite possibly you might have looked at Mary and looked at Jesus and saw you got similar noses, similar ears, or something like that because her genes were in him. He was that human. And when we talk about that, when we use that sort of language, we're we're not making Jesus some sort of demigod. We heard this morning, didn't we, about Achilles, the great legend of Achilles and how there was a, a god in heaven, a Greek god in heaven, and how that god became attracted to an earthly human woman, and they have a child together, and out comes this child and this, this sort of god. That's not what happened with Jesus. Neither did this unique conception of Christ make Christ God. The miracle of that pregnancy wasn't the source of his deity, for, for he, for all of eternity, had always been God the Son. Now, God the Son, in the fullness of time, God became incarnate. God took on our human nature. Christ Jesus, as one person, I became one person with two natures. And that's where in trying to understand, trying to define how the two natures of Christ Jesus, the divine and the human, how they can coexist, how they can operate within one person, that is where historically at times the church has drifted into heresy. This is the complicated bits 
in the Person of Jesus Christ series. Last week was straightforward. He is God, full stop. This week we look at His humanity. Well, how, do, how does that work? How does the divine and the human work in the one person? And as I say, historically, the church has gone astray. For example, in the late first century AD, there was a, a movement called Docetism. Uh, this movement taught that the flesh of Jesus wasn't real flesh. It was spiritual. And therefore, Jesus only appeared to be human. That's the Greek word for appeared. He seemed human, but he wasn't really human. He wasn't a real person like us. Even the Apostle John, when dealing with that false view in his day, he writes in 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. And that's what he said in 1 John 4. To, to say that Jesus has not come is wrong. It's the spirit of error. It's indeed the spirit of antichrist. Later on in the second century AD, there arose another view that rejected this, this virginal conception of Jesus. To say Jesus, yes, was human. Yes, he was the Messiah. But no, he wasn't divine. You can't get around the, how, how Jesus can be human and he can be divine. Another view after that was that Jesus, yes, was an ordinary Jewish man who then became inhabited by the Word. So Jesus was just an ordinary bloke walking down the street, and then into that ordinary bloke comes God, into like, like a possession of sorts. And that person, Jesus, then takes on this second person of, of the Trinity. Sometimes heresy started in reaction to previous heresies. Someone came along wanting to correct what had been said before, and they themselves end up making another hash of the job. For example, someone would say, yes, the Word became flesh. Yes, he definitely took on a human body, but he didn't have a human mind. He wasn't truly, fully human. For that he took on a human body, a human mind, yes, we've got to get that right, but he wasn't co-eternal. See, it just swings from side to side, emphasizing the deity or emphasizing the humanity. And so for a couple of centuries, the, the understanding of Jesus Christ, having those two natures, the divine and the human, swung from so emphasizing Jesus' humanity that his deity was reduced, or his deity was so emphasized that the significance of his humanity was downplayed. It was usually always the common agreement that Jesus had two natures, but there was often that disagreement on what, on what Mark Jones calls the quality or integrity of the two natures as they related to each other. Church history is interesting. It would scare you, actually. It would scare you the wobbly foundations of the church. Not That's not heresy. Don't get me wrong here. Our foundations are on Christ and so forth. But in terms of the early church post-apostles, it's not great. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of wobbling until they settled down and got their creed sorted out, out of which then has come the orthodox understanding of what is the Christian faith. In this matter of how the, the divine and how the human natures of Jesus Christ work together, it wasn't until the 5th century AD, until 451, that this Chalcedonian creed was drawn up, which summarized as clearly as possible how Christ, being one person, could have two separate natures. And it's 
In the English, it's one long sentence of 195 words. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but let me read a few sentences. Truly God and truly man, consubstantial, meaning having the same nature as, consubstantial with the Father in Godhead, and the same consubstantial with us in manhood, like us in all things except sin, born of Mary the Virgin, the same Christ, Son, Lord, unique, recognized in two natures, inconfusedly, that's a new word, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, one person, not divided or separated into two persons, and so on and so forth. Now, I don't want us to get bogged down in words and sentences and things like that tonight, but this was the creed that really established our orthodox understanding of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the feature of him having one person and two natures, that he had two distinct natures, not just one as a sort of mixture of the human and the divine and so forth, two natures, separate, distinct. Even within Christianity, within the, the umbrella of Christendom, there is difference of opinion on how those two natures affect one another. But again, read a good systematic theology and you'll be able to explore that more yourselves. Jesus Christ truly was human. In the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you, you read of instances where Jesus demonstrated his humanness. You read, for example, how Luke tells us that event when Jesus was 12 years of age and Joseph and Mary appear to lose their son in Jerusalem and they eventually find him. But afterwards, Jesus goes back to their hometown and with them, it says in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus learnt. He learnt to read and write. Jesus learnt to speak. There's a wee chap recently on the news, a guy called Teddy, a four-year-old. By a two years of age, he taught himself to read. I think he can count up to a hundred and six different languages already. He's a genius, seemingly a genius. He's the youngest British member of Mensa. Brilliant. Jesus did not come into this world as an adult in a child's body. He did not. He came into this world in his humanity as a child. He learned to speak. He learned to read. He learned to read the Torah. He learned to write out the Torah. He memorized the Torah in his humanity. He was just like one of us. Hebrews 5 verse 8 tells us that in his humanity, Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering. He had to do that because he was human, but doing that then made him the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And we'll come back to that later on tonight. In John 4, we read that Jesus was weary from traveling. Jesus got tired. He, he rested by the well of Sychar. He needed a drink from the woman who, who was there with him. In Mark chapter 4, you read of Jesus being sound asleep in the back of a boat in the middle of a storm. And you remember how we looked at Psalm 121, how God does not slumber or sleep. He doesn't need to, and yet Jesus in his humanity, he needed to. Even the fact that Jesus could spit saliva to make blood, uh, sorry, to make mud, to use that mud in the healing process of the blind man. Or think of the human emotion of Jesus and how he wept at Lazarus's tomb, how he wept over the city of Jerusalem as he approached it in Luke 19. In Matthew 8, when he heard the faith of the centurion, how Jesus marveled at the faith of that man. 
in Mark 14, how troubled, how anxious Jesus was in his humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, think of how Jesus suffered. He was spat upon. He was struck. His physical body was struck. When they put the crown of thorns on his head, the thorns went into a physical forehead. He bled. Jesus bled and died. Arguably one of the most important, one of the most significant proofs of Jesus' humanity was when the Roman soldier thrust the spear up into the side of Jesus to check if he was dead. John, who was an eyewitness of all of this, he tells us that when he watched this, he saw blood and water come out. And that is crucial. It's a detail that's worth noting. Through all the suffering that Jesus faced, through his flogging, through his crucifixion, the internal impact of that suffering apparently would have caused a buildup of fluid around his heart. And so, when Christ dies, when the spear is then thrust up in underneath his ribcage, it ruptures that buildup of fluid around the heart, out of which then pours the blood and the water. It was a real body. It was real flesh. It was real blood. Jesus had truly died as a fully human being with a genuine human body. That's why John writes his first letter. He opens with those words, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Those disciples, they spent three years with Jesus. As far as we can tell, it never once crossed their minds that he wasn't as human as they were. So Wayne Grudem writes this in his systematic theology. Was Jesus fully human? He was so fully human that even those who lived and worked with him for 30 years, even those brothers who grew up in his own household, did not realize that he was anything more than another very good human being. They apparently had no idea that he was God come in the flesh. So there we have the humanity of Jesus Christ. But so what? So what? Why must we as Christians insist on this? We insist on his deity. Why must we insist on his full humanity as well? Well, let me close tonight with four quick reasons. If you read Wayne Grudem's theology, he has seven. I've pinched four of them just for the sake of time. First of all, the Lord Jesus needed to have full humanity in order to act as our proper and perfect representative. Remember what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, where there he's comparing the historical human Adam with the historical human Christ. For example, verse 15, the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. See the comparison there. Verses 18 and 19 expand that comparison of Adam's disobedience and what that meant for us, namely our condemnation. Paul compares that with Christ's obedience and what that means for us, namely a right relationship with God and a new life for those who believe. Now that couldn't have happened if the Lord Jesus hadn't have been truly comparable with Adam, a true human with a true human. For example, where Adam failed when he was tempted in that lush garden of Eden, 
As we heard earlier, Jesus overcame his temptation in the wilderness. That's why Paul can refer to Adam in 1 Corinthians 15 as the first Adam, and Christ he refers to as the second man, the last Adam. It's important then that we stress Jesus Christ, our Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of our lives, he was definitely, truly human. He had to be. Secondly, the Lord Jesus needed to fully share our humanity in order to be our proper and perfect substitutionary sacrifice. Quite simply, how could Jesus have properly and truly taken our place in suffering and dying for our sins if he wasn't truly as us, as a human? And the writer to the Hebrews, he stresses that in the way he words it. Hebrews 2 verse 16 he says, surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We're going to come back to that again as we move on in our series to look at Jesus Christ as our prophet, our priest, and our king. But there you have it. Not even a suffering archangel would have satisfied God. Only a righteous, a sinless human could bear the guilt of sinful humans. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, could die in our place for our salvation. The third reason for why Jesus needed to be truly, fully human is for him to be our proper, our perfect mediator. The, the one mediator between God and us. That's what Paul had to stress in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. There is one God, God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul there is stressing the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. How this one God from whom we all have become alienated by sin, that God desires all people to be saved. The means of that reconciliation, the way back to God from the dark paths of sin is not in ourselves. At the very least, you see, it would be one-sided. It would all be us. The mediation needs God and us. Hence, we need someone who can perfectly represent God and us. And that mediator alone is Jesus Christ, not Mary. The Roman Catholic Church will teach that Mary, the mother of Jesus, she is the mediator between us and Jesus. We don't need Mary in that sense at all. We can come straight to Jesus Christ and through Christ and in Christ be reconciled to God the Father. And fourthly and finally, the Lord Jesus Christ needed to be fully human. He needed to fully share our humanity in order to be our example and our pattern in life. That's how John the Apostle viewed the Lord Jesus. 1 John 2 verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The New Living Translation puts it more blunt, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. You see, this is our sanctification. The progress in our sanctification is that we behave more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ behaved. We look unto him, our author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12. Our sanctification is that we be changed more and more to become more and more like the Lord Jesus. 
We're heading in the direction to where the Lord is taking us that we would be finally and fully conformed to the image of his Son, Romans 8, 29. Jesus is the example. He's the model we look to for how we ought to live as Christians. He shows us in his humanity what we are to do in certain situations as we find ourselves as Christians. And because we see him in his full humanity, depending upon the Holy Spirit in his humanity, he proves to us it can be done. Like, for example, in the wilderness when he faced the devil seeking to tempt him into sin. And that's another thing we're not going down tonight. Could Jesus have sinned? Let's talk about that over coffee. That's a good question to think about, though. I, I know a church split over that. Could Jesus have sinned? And why tempt him if he couldn't have sinned, you know? But he couldn't have sinned because he's divine, and God cannot sin. So, so why did the devil tempt him in the first place, you know? It's a big, big debate about this. We look to Jesus Christ and what he did in his humanity when the devil came to him, subtly trying to tempt him. What did he do? What did Jesus do? That's what we do. We resist the devil with the word of God. Jesus did it. He wants us to do that as well. When Jesus suffered, when he was persecuted, what did Jesus do? He did not turn back on them and beat them. He prayed for their forgiveness. And that's what we're to do as well. Jesus did it. We ought to do it. Arguably, I put to you, arguably every life situation we will face as believers. In principle, Jesus has also faced it. And when we study him, when we think about him and what he did when we pray to, when we meditate over this and pray about this, we learn to see our Savior and how he coped with life in this world. We too then, by the same Holy Spirit that enabled him to live as he lived, we too can do as he did and truly follow our Lord Jesus Christ. May God help us to do that together.